Welcome to Unpack This, a podcast by and for academic misfits, where we unpack all things academic and non. I am one of your hosts, Joe Shu, and... I am Constance Bailey, the other part of this dynamic duo. So this week, our episode is titled, We Should Be Writing, which is a mantra that probably follows us everywhere. And we'll be discussing writing, journals, publications, the sort of thing that haunts a lot of, at least our academic careers. Constance, I'll let you introduce why we're talking about this. So for most academics and probably non-academics as well, you've probably heard the expression publish or perish, which gives people, well, gives me (laughs) a sense of impending doom. I think other junior faculty as well. I think we alluded to the research designations a little bit last week. So this idea of publishing or perishing means that if you're at a research institution or R1 and probably R2, you are expected in most disciplines, because there are some disciplinary differences for sure. The hard sciences are probably very different from the humanities and social sciences. But as humanities scholars, both Joe and I have to produce a full length, sometimes monograph, manuscript, book. Basically, we got to write a book. And that will put you on the path towards tenure. It's not the only part of the process. Academics are generally led to believe that your appointments are 40% based on your research, i.e. getting the book done, (laughs) 40% based on teaching, and 20% service. So 40-40-20 might be something that you've heard In my experience, and this is just anecdotal, but I think it's probably 90% research. (laughs) I mean, to clarify, that is for the the research one designation that we were talking about last time. So our experiences are particular to this, this particular type of institution. Yes, thank you for clarifying. But yeah, the expectation, I think, even though we care deeply about our students and try to do a great job teaching, I think we do a fabulous job teaching, if I must say so myself. But I do think that... The expectation at R1s is that you are um, publishing in an academic press. I guess the question that I would then throw back to you, what is peer review? People hear that term a lot. What do we mean by that? And what does it mean to have publications that aren't refereed publications? Sure. One of the exciting things about this job for me is this scholarship, and that is that you get to have conversations at the forefront of the development of your field. So we're here presumably because we care about the conversations happening in these areas that we study. And as researchers, we get to publish and hopefully nudge those conversations in directions that we think are important or interesting. And academic journals are places where we have those conversations. And they are peer-reviewed, or at least the ones that often count for your CV are peer-reviewed, which means that somebody who is also an expert in your field, usually two reviewers, will receive your manuscript without your name on it, and they will read it and determine whether or not this is something that you know meets scholarly expectations. They might offer suggestions for revisions. There are good things and bad things to this. One of the things that is important, one of the things I love about peer review is that writing can be a lonely and isolating process. And actually, when you get good feedback, you're writing in community. You're getting somebody else who's also interested and invested in these things, telling you where they think these ideas are going, where other sources they think you might find uh, useful for the argument you're trying to make, sometimes just encouragement about the thing you're trying to say. 
where this is limiting is that this is an inherently conservative process, right? Usually, uh, especially if you're young in the field, your work as a junior scholar will get sent to senior scholars, which means your ideas as somebody who is coming in here new are going to be sent to somebody who's been here for a long time. And that person who's been here for a long time is going to assess whether or not your new ideas meet their expectations for what, what this conversation will be. So, so in a perfect world, everybody is open and into engaging new ideas and exploring new directions. But in the imperfect world that we're in, that is not always the case. So it's this fraught process that has a good idea underneath it, but oftentimes uh, has harmful implications in application. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to, I guess, speak to peer review before I forget this thought, because I am notorious for that. So it's really interesting that you mentioned, and, and this is, I think, a truism, but I feel like in some cases I've been the exception more so than the rule. So generally speaking, peer review, you're right. Senior scholars in the field are vetting your work and you could potentially get exposure, but there is this sense of gatekeeping. All that tends to be true. I think because a couple of my subfields are still fairly specialized. So the senior scholars in the field are either like too big to be, I guess, bothered. <laughs> They're too busy or, or for whatever reason they have said they can't participate in the peer review process or aren't for that particular academic year or whatever the case may be. So I have felt particularly vulnerable as a junior faculty because I have felt I've done, I think two or maybe three times I've been asked to to peer review and and most of the time, I don't know if three is enough to have most, but but two out of three of the times I have risen to the occasion. I have rose, have risen. I don't know. We're, I mean, neither of us are grammarians. We'll have to figure that out. But, but <laughs> risen, I, I think I have risen to the occasion, and and it was fine. I was glad to be able to give this up and coming scholar some feedback and something formative to build on. I did feel because I am teaching and trying to write myself and also have a family, I, I felt a little overburdened. And I have to say, and this is something, I guess this is an academic skeleton in the closet. And if this faculty member listens to this podcast, when, when we blow up, Joe, which is inevitable, <laughs> then I am so, so sorry. I, I completely dropped the ball. There was a review that I agreed to do in the spring and it was on... An article that I think was on ethnic humor, this was a journal that that dealt with ethnic studies and one of my areas is African-American comedy and humor. And my daughter was two and a half hours away in a treatment facility. I was commuting back and forth to try to see her. I was dealing with some issues myself. So I was struggling with that. And so I you know, my own personal demands, academic de demands, and also the, the article ended up being a laborious read. I have to say that, you know, sometimes in, in my writing, listen, I've been editing today and I was reading something that was a laborious read. So there was no judgment, right? At least in that way. But in terms of trying to figure out like I was raised, like Southern Black people, it's like, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And so I was working on that reader's report. I had a good friend who asked me two or three months later, are you still working? Because they felt so bad for me. I had been laboring on how to frame. I wasn't sure that I could say revise and resubmit. And maybe this is something you can actually speak to in terms of categories in talking about journal articles, because 
Never in my academic life that I think I would get something accepted with no revisions, but I only had copy edits for a piece that's forthcoming. So yay. But, but I probably had worked on that thing 10 years. Um, so yeah, I think this idea of the R&R, what are the characters? We've got revise and resubmit. You've got an outright rejection. And that is, I think, sometimes a part that comes with the territory where... Um, yeah. So, okay. You submit an essay to a journal. This is oftentimes something, especially if you're trying to get a research-based position after graduate school that you'll be trying to do toward the end of your graduate career. You'll submit your essay to a journal that editor will usually send it out to to reviewers and they'll get back, rec- back recommendations. Those reviewers might say accept. They might say accept with minor revisions. They might say reject. Uh, revise and resubmit, which is you're not yet in the journal, but if you make these revisions, you have a pretty good shot as long as you, you know, follow the things that we suggested. And then there's an outright rejection, which happens because, you know, sometimes because the piece is not a good fit, sometimes because you wound up with reviewers who weren't a good fit for you. Uh, But it is, you know, part of an academic career and everyone's experience. Um, I want to, I want to speak a little bit to what Constance was talking about in terms of reviewing essays uh, having, you know, in, in the past few years of this career, being increasingly on that side of the desk, right? Being the reviewer who gets the essays, uh, the range of essays that I get, I find really interesting. So for the most part, you know, I'm situated pretty firmly in my field of rhetoric and composition. I get essays that have to do with the queerness, Asian American rhetorics, um, sometimes writing studies, but, I do remember getting an essay from a literary journal once because I once wrote uh, an essay about a particular literary figure who, and, and, and certainly that editor must have Googled how few people in the world have written about this person because I got, I got an ass to, to, to re- review for this journal. And in that case, you know, I had to, I had to sit with the, the essay that he sent for a while and be like, okay, even though this isn't my field of expertise, do I know enough about what he's talking about to feel confident offering recommendations for the author? And so I've, I've tried to approach the process of reviewing as an, an important part of the job that we do, particularly since coming up into the field, we often struggle with trying to make our work legible to say folks who might adhere to more conservative views of the field. So having been folks who've been pushing for change, it helps to, to be able to be that person on the other side of the desk and to receive those manuscripts and to be able to give feedback to authors who are also trying to move these conversations in the directions that you see as most productive and interesting. So I see that as an important part of this job, but also one that is challenging to do perfectly, I guess, sometimes. One, as Constance is saying, particularly for those of us who do areas of study that are more structurally marginalized, there are very few of us, which means that we're getting bombarded with the the only manuscripts in, in those areas, right? Because there's only the same two or three people who do this particular area of study. And a lot of us are more junior because a lot of these fields are only recently being allowed in to academic conversations. So there's the fact that the bulk of our work is still trying to get tenure. The fact that we have to be careful what we say in terms of giving feedback to people who might be senior and who might be able to identify who, who we are. And yeah, navigating the, I guess, politics of that is, is also a challenge. I think at its best, academic publishing is 
fostering conversations about how we move the field forward. But that is not necessarily the model everywhere. I, I will say that one of the journals that I'm on the editorial board for, I joined because the point of the journal, one of the major goals of the journal was to shift the way this practice is done. And one of the cool things about it is that for authors who want it, when they get their feedback, we offer connecting them with a mentor in the field. And that's not to say that the author has to be a junior person, uh, but that we connect them uh, wherever they are in their career with somebody else who's thinking about similar things uh, with whom to talk about moving your ideas forward. And I think that that's a model of doing this work that is transparent about what we're asking of the authors, why we're asking those things, and also particularly helpful for those who are newer in the field to learn, you know, what is this genre that I'm trying to invent as I write and how do I participate in it? So I love that about this journal, but I also acknowledge that that is a super labor intensive way to do uh, article publication. And we're asking a lot of labor for those who volunteer to be mentors for us. So again, it's, you know, the very imperfect part of this world that we're in, where there are fantastic changes to be made, but also all of those changes require, you know, tremendous amounts of labor from people who do not have the time or the energy. And who also aren't compensated for it. And I don't, like, that's no small thing, right, in terms of humanities scholars, unless you're in an endowed chair or at a particularly prosperous institution, then we don't have, by and large, don't have six-figure salaries. And so, it is that time that you are supposed to be working on your own scholarship or contributing to your own institutions. But I do think, to your point, mentoring is so important. And I and I mean, that's the thing I like about the peer review process, even though it's supposed to be anonymous, as you alluded to. There's something that sometimes gets lost in translation where people don't remove the... Like I have seen comments from a reviewer. I never said anything when I see them at academic conferences. I respect her work tremendously. And thankfully, she didn't say horrible things, but still, I would have been super, super... So, so I'm, I always have a great deal of trepidation when I am doing reviews because I'm like, let me make sure this is anonymous. Sent back with yes, you. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, and I'll, I never remember how to do it. So I'm always Googling, triple checking like that I removed <laughs> the metadata because I, you know, the, the editors may be busy, so they may not remember to do that or, or whatever. But yeah, so... That's interesting, though, because I, I know the author is supposed to be anonymous when the reviewer is reading the piece, but I have had reviewers sign their reviews, which I've actually really loved, especially if they're senior folks in the field. I've been able to. The, one of the, the scholars who, who signed the review for my first ever publication, I, I found her at a conference and was like, I really appreciate uh, you know all the feedback you gave me and uh, all the enthusiasm you, you provided for my ideas. So it was not only really encouraging to hear that from a scholar I admired, but also gave me a way to talk to that scholar at a conference, whereas otherwise I would just been like, hi. Yeah, cool well, that's awesome. I have not had that experience and I would have loved to, especially this most recent piece where there weren't any substantive changes. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so flattered. Who wrote this? nice, awesome thing. <laughs> and I have no clue. I probably would have sent them a candle or something weird and I would, it would have been awkward at the conference. So it might have worked out for the best. But what I will say about journals, and I think this is what's intimidating and also why academics or academia gets a, accused of elitism, I think is that because we are still by and large privileging print and the the written, and there is an expense and a labor involved in the the publishing of physical journals, which some journals for budget reasons are going to to completely digital, 
But I do think I, I see some trends to your earlier point where we're seeing some really revolutionary trends in some of these academic subfields that, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't even entertain the thought of a podcast being considered an intellectual contribution and being listed on your CV. But I did want to go back to, this is from like an hour ago, <laughs> but you mentioned a CV. And so I was going to ask you in case there is a listener, there are hordes, but in case there is a listener who does not know what a CV is, could you, what, what's a CV and what sure. does it mean to have a line yeah. on the CV? <laughs> I mean, if, if I'm going to give the snobby answer, it's Latin for course of life, right? <laughs> Which I actually, I just like that fact, um, even though CVs are very poor representations of that. So for academics, uh, CV is a very long-winded resume that sort of tracks all of the things in your academic journey that you get uh credit for. So that is your degrees, awards that you've won, publications that are recognized by whatever it is you do in your profession, um, service that you've done, so committees that you've served on, students that you've advised, uh, conferences that you've gone to, and presentations that you've given. We'll also have a whole other episode on conferences and giving talks there. And so this document just gets longer and longer as your career goes. If you look at the CVs of full professors, I don't know that I can ever read one straight from top to bottom just because they've done so much. Um, so it, it tracks, you know, your academic career as it goes. And particularly for folks who are going into research-based jobs, the peer-reviewed publication sort of gets a uh, priority in that list of things that you've published because it is the sort of gold standard for doing scholarship. And kind of like what I was saying before, there are good things about that in that scholarship should be supported by other people who are also experts in your field, usually. It's very good to have your work double-checked just because we're all very uh human <laughs> and we couldn't possibly know everything there is to know or have read everything there is to read. So in, in, a, in a perfect world where we're all supportive of one another's goals and aims, it would it'd be just tremendously helpful to make sure that everybody's ideas have been in conversation with others with expertise. But in terms of the elitism that Constance was talking about, it also means that academia is giving a tremendous amount of weight to a genre that only speaks to other academics, which means that there are a lot of us sitting on top of knowledge that is super important, but often isn't written for a general audience. And that's where you end up with a very earned distrust of academics when we've done such a poor job of relating why what we do is important or how it connects to people's everyday lives, uh, let alone, you know, how to take this knowledge and make it usable for for the goals that they have in, in their own material needs. So um, again, everything sort of is, is in that gray area. There are good things about this process and the way that it works. And there are things that have made academia tremendously limiting in terms of who it's speaking to and how. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. I have encountered journal articles or books that have been extremely inaccessible to me and I have advanced degrees. They may not be from the most prestigious institutions in the country, but I didn't get them out of a Cracker Jack box either. So if I cannot digest with some ease what your prose is doing, to me, that's a problem. And it's not so much the aesthetics of it. That's fine if that's you know, that writer's particular style, but it can also become another form of gatekeeping when the information is inaccessible. So for people who want to enter fields who may have learning disabilities, 
that shouldn't prevent them from having access to knowledge. So to me, when we get so specialized and so jargony in our communication, and when we say it has to be this thing, um, there is this tension, right? So we want things to be validated by people in our field, and we want to be contributing to this intellectual conversation, but you know, we also want to be producing writing that is comprehensible to the people that we are writing about. So you want uh, it to have value and meaning for the people that it is about in theory. So we want to be doing, we don't want to be doing theory without practice. We want to, if we can, break down some of those boundaries. Yeah, and I really want to underscore something you're saying there, which is that the language that we've historically privileged as scholarly is not inherently scholarly. It was just created by a certain set of people with a certain set of aesthetics and a certain set of knowledge that they then use to legitimize people like them, right? And so the other forms of knowledge that come with people with disabilities or often communities of color or queer communities or trans communities, those things are seen as less legitimate and have often had to try to explain what it is that they're contributing to the conversation when they are already very valid bodies of knowledge that have created like the survival of entire communities. So back to that point about this being an inherently conservative process, right? And and that it is a very slow moving evolution if it's happening at all. Um, I don't know where I was even going with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we started, so we started out with the CV, which thank you, because that was a concise I couldn't have, I would have rambled for an hour about that. But I think part of where you were going, which I think we got to do a whole separate episode, is kind of about linguistic justice or injustice, as the case may be, right? Because a lot of our communication has been delegitimized by the academy, and that's it makes it inherently an uneven, unequal playing field. And so you're already starting behind, whatever the metaphor is, I'm butchering it. But yeah, so you're starting the race from behind. And so that I think is going to be a whole other thing. But I, I did have a question, not to like beat this CV thing to death. I'm genuinely curious and I could probably just Google it, but while we're talking about it. So so it used to be like, I've had a number of jobs. You will find a lot of, uh, find a lot out about us over the course of this podcast. I've been a bartender. I've worked at Walmart. I've done like all kinds of, not a bartender, Lord, I'm making up fields. What's the <laughs> thing that you do I was a blackjack dealer. I knew it started with a B. All right, yeah, I was a blackjack dealer. (laughs) (laughs) I just made up a whole career. Yeah, I was a blackjack dealer. But anyway, so at one point I was I had a resume more so than a CV. And the thing with resumes, they used to say don't go back past 10 years. So I was updating my CV the other day and I was like, well, this is really old. Maybe I should delete it. But now that you mentioned about full professor CVs, I've seen those things look like a whole pack, like a whole magazine. Do academics delete things after 10 years? I don't think so. Not that I recall or see. I don't think so. I mean, like there are things that I put in there during grad school that I've deleted, like really minor committees or, you know, things that fill out the the CV when you don't have things to put on it, but otherwise, the, like if you published a major article twenty years ago, that is definitely still on your CV. Yeah, well, for sure. I, I thought about that too. I was like, well, career academics, you got a list of. I mean, because it's all part of your professional career. Once you're out of grad school, like that's you've been your career. Yeah, I have to think about that. I don't think 
hopefully it was something really minor. So questions in, I don't know, the remaining time that we have left, we should probably talk a little bit about process since we've emphasized so much. And of course, the episode is called We Should Be Writing. So do you want to speak to your process or what do we mean? We can do that. And audiences, all two of our listeners will get used to the fact that they're getting a particularly skewed version of of this experience from both of us, and which is part of the intent, really, in that a lot of those who are giving voice academic experiences are not people like us. But given that we're both a little or a lot ADHD, uh, writing process is probably different than it is for folks who are neurotypical. Um, I found, having been a creative writer to get my MFA and now an academic, none of the advice about this is how to be productive or how to be a good writer works for me in any way whatsoever. So a lot of institutions get memberships to the NFCDD, the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. There's like a two-week writing boot camp that folks do, and I've heard a lot of good things about it, and I know that it's been productive for a lot of people. And for me, the way that those things are run, like you will set them aside this time each day to write, does not work for me for, for a lot of reasons. One, in that that might just not be where my brain is that day. And if I am not having a good hyper-focus moment, I might not be able to, to do, do a lot of anything right at that moment. But also being a chronically sick person, I write when my body lets me, you know, um, and that also makes my schedule super erratic in that, you know, I'm feeling good right now, so I will do what I need to right now while I have this degree of physical capacity and that will adjust depending on how I feel throughout the day. But similarly, the things about writing, like this is how you organize a thing or this is how you outline a thing, none of those are how I write. Um, I've, I've learned over time that I'm kind of a chaotic, I, my partner calls me chaotic good, uh, which I think is pretty accurate, uh, hopefully the good part uh, too, but I, for, for most things that I've written, including the book that it is currently in process um, and moving closer to the production process, I word vomit a lot of things and I've learned to trust myself that even though I can't consciously see what is happening on the page, eventually those ideas start to coalesce and I start to see a through line. And sometimes uh, a, a technique that I actually really love, uh, and this one is a shout out to Lisa Corian actually, is uh, creating a list of keywords and then writing to find connections between those keywords until I've reached at, you know, I, until I've reached maybe a like one or two sentence statement about this is what this is about. And then I, I will have the core idea in front of me. So, so that's like a, a, a trick that I really love or, you know, anytime that I'm stuck, I get out a pen and paper and I, I write to myself what I'm really trying to say is, and I, I take all of the dragon out of it. I talk to myself about what I'm trying to do. Um, but, but otherwise the, the stuff about like set aside this amount of time outline this thing first. None of those things are for me. And I'm sure that they work well for other people, but I, it's, it hasn't, it hasn't for me. So I'm curious about your, your experience as well. I guess that's why we're, we're academic misfits, right? That the typical or the quote unquote conventional wisdom does not work for us necessarily, but just in the way of conventional wisdom, people will say, write every day. That's what people will say, even if it's not good, even if whatever, just write every day, get something down, even if it's word vomit, and you can clean it up later. And it doesn't matter how long. So people have said you can do 15 minutes, you can do 30 minutes. 
that I think is at least consistently at different conferences and different workshops I've done, that has been the mantra. And, and setting aside the, the different, the times it varies, you know, a time where it's uninterrupted. And as a single parent of three children, I can tell you that no such time exists. So I don't write every day. We said we should be writing. I should be. Today was a day where I had the greatest intention of writing. And I actually have written a little bit, but <clears throat> I, I got distracted. I was trying to retrieve some documents and then I realized that my Dropbox files were really disorganized. So then I had to do that thing. For me, I use the marathon versus sprinter uh, metaphor, which doesn't always hold up well, but because I don't know when the kids are going to be sick or when there's going to be a quote unquote good time, when I'm able to with family support, and it seems like it's, I'm going to be able to be in a good mental and physical place that I can sort of isolate. Then I try to do little retreats. And that is really contingent on my budget. It's contingent on the support of family and friends. But I try to, people call them different things like a staycation or writing retreat or whatever. But I try to just hold up, like actually feel like I'm getting into a zone where I'm not physically back at work because since the time that I started working on my manuscript, like two and a half, three years ago, my mother has had cancer. I have had a hip replacement. I've had an asthmatic child be in and out of the hospital. And there's been a whole damn pandemic. So I'm not anywhere near where I thought I would be. And I'm still thankful to be wherever the hell I am. I'm thankful that the days like today where I can write something, it feels like a good day to me. Yeah, but I try to, so I try to do writing retreats and I try to do writing lock-ins and hopefully, because I'll build momentum. So today has been a really good day. And then Theoretically, if nobody gets sick, <laughs> then tomorrow can be a really good day. And if nobody gets sick because I don't have to go into work, so I don't have the disruptions of everyday life right now, which is a sort of protective space, right? Because many of us, if you're not at, if you have more than a 2-2 load or if you have family obligations or whatever the case may be, then you've got daily disruption. So this idea of uninterrupted time or even that you can set aside. People say everybody has 30 minutes. Everybody, yeah, I have 30 minutes, but I also have to do laundry in 30 minutes. I got to take somebody to band practice in 30 minutes. I got to pick up somebody from work. I got a potty training regression going on over here. So, so you know, I don't ever want to be dismissive of someone else's struggles. And I think that when colleagues or people say things like that, that they're not, that, that you always have 30 minutes, that they're not necessarily trying to be dismissive or it's not with malicious intent. I think that sometimes people do not realize how complicated other people's, you know, day-to-day -day lives are, particularly if you struggle, you know, with a physical, emotional, mental disability, and then you also have other partners or children or even parents that you're caring for, then it just gets really complicated. But I'm actually really, really thankful because if I had, let's say if I had finished the book a year ago or, or a year and a half ago, some of the um, really groundbreaking research and exciting things that I'm really like, I'm going to add Andre Brock's look at Black cyber cultures and libido economies into the, like, there's so much exciting stuff that I can now be a part of this conversation that I'm wanting to have. So on the one hand, maybe I could have been a part of the groundbreaking research, but that's okay. But I think that what Joe and I are both saying is that every everybody's process is different and that's okay. So I think you just got to find what works for you and embrace that.
Yeah, I, I like what you said about there being groundbreaking conversations that you can be in conversation with. And I love that perspective on that. You will be part of the groundbreaking conversation just at a different entry point than where you might have been otherwise. I also like that we're talking about strategies that we have that are perhaps different, but still work for us. I am also a binge typewriter. It's my experience of ADHD, but I, I don't know if it's everyone's, but that one of the things I struggle with is changing the track of my brain on demand. So the hyper-focused thing, I might be, I might discover that my Dropbox is disorganized and that is suddenly what I am doing for the next hour instead of the thing I was planning to do. But at some point when I'm working on a project, I will hit that on the article that I'm working on. And I know that I will just disappear for a couple of days and that unfortunately for my loved ones, everything else kind of falls away a little bit as I focus on this thing. And that is when I get the writing done, but it does not happen in the 15, 30 minute blocks that I set aside because I just can't switch my brain in that moment. And the other, the other big strategy for me as a chronically sick person is that my calendar is a lie. Uh, all of my deadlines are a week ahead so that I've built in a buffer zone for in case I get sick, in case I need to get some tests done or whatever. And that's been beyond just practically helpful. It's been emotionally helpful for me in that I know I, I've created that like bit of security for myself, even though it's not perfect. Um, I need so, to do that. What's that? I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to do if you haven't done it already, because now you already have deadlines, you know, <laughs> yes. zooming in on you. I was fortunate in that I started that way. My dad set all of our, the clocks in our house five minutes fast. So my entire life as a kid, I was just five minutes early to everything. And I think some part of that stuck so that my entire calendar- Well, is listen, that used to be a thing. I, I think I have somehow gotten out of that because I used to do that, like put the thing early on my calendar so that I know it would be on time or whatever. And now I'm just like, it, it's a whole mess over here. But this is what I would say in terms of consistency to your point, even though I'm not- chronically ill, having a kid who's chronically ill, not ever really being able to be in that mindset and then alter having, you know, alternate periods of hyper focus and, and no focus at all. What I will say, and I think I got this from a writing workshop, is for those who are able to have a very set schedule, even if you don't have the inspiration to write, I do find that there are times where I can add to the bibliography or I can do formatting, which is time consuming. So I find there are ways to be productive and to help kind of further your projects along, even when you don't really have inspiration. So I don't know if that's helpful to anybody, but that's maybe my two cents at least. Yeah, I like that uh, too. You learn what you can do in different when you're in different brain spaces or emotional places. So if I can't write at this time, I I have learned to acknowledge that, that I'm not getting writing done. So instead I will do the teaching prep that I need to do, or I'll read the articles I keep meaning to read. And oftentimes if I'm stuck reading the articles that I've been reading to read is, is a good way to get me thinking. But I think one of the through lines in this conversation is to not only forgive yourself for not meeting the like expectations or the standards of what how, how things should be done, but also embracing that as a part of who you are as a scholar, teacher, etc. that this is your process and that's fine because it's what works for you and how you're going to be able to do the best of your work. Yeah, I don't know if it'll end up being the best advice for academics. I've kind of leaned into that identity of the nutty professor. I'm so absent, you know, 
And but here's the other thing, and this may be like really shocking and it might even be blasphemous to say, but the most salient part of my identity is actually not professor. It's that is wonderful. That is fantastic. More people need to say that out loud. Yes. I know that there are career academics who can't imagine doing anything else. And believe me, I love doing this. So I hope I'm doing this thing for a while. But first and most important, I think the most salient aspect of my identity for me, at least, is being a mother. So everything else kind of, I just get to in where it fits in. So, yeah. yeah. I honestly think that that makes you a better person in this field, when you're able to see things outside of it and the stakes of things outside of it and engage with others that you interact with, understanding that there are stakes outside of it. I think we would all be a much healthier profession (laughs) if folks had definitions of themselves that extended beyond the walls of the university. That is a really, really great point. By the time this podcast comes out, there will be a Twitter account. So while we're talking about this idea of peer review and we should be writing, There is a question that I want to pose and and we'll tweet it out to our 10 followers or whatever, but is the self-citation an academic flex or is it just pretentious as hell? That's really the question. Although, Joe, I should ask you to chime in on that. Actually, I'm going to post, I'm going to put it on the Twitter, whatever, (laughs) the tweet, whatever you call it. But what do you think about that? I'm so glad you're managing the Twitter because that is not a platform that I have experience with or I'm good at. I'm not good at being concise, which might be my problem. And also I'm worried about, apparently all sorts of contentious conversations happen on academic Twitter and I'm worried about poking that bear. But self-citation is strange, especially if you are somebody who does a really um, new or marginalized area of work. Sometimes you are the only person who has done this thing. And that I think is totally fine. I I have no problem with people who cite themselves. I I think that's super relevant and important sometimes. And as a reader, I find it useful. Like I need to know what you think is useful of the things that you've written about this topic. I find it worse when academics have written on a thing and they think they're the only person who's written on that thing. So I can't believe so-and-so wrote on it and didn't cite me. Well, they cited other, they, they got to that topic through other people, which is great. There are other people who are interested in exploring the things that you are interested in exploring. Uh, I don't tend to cite myself when I can avoid it. If I can avoid it, I try not to, except I had a funny experience. And, and I know I have several colleagues who've also had this experience where you get reviewer feedback and because you're anonymous, they're like, well, why didn't this person cite so-and-so who's written about this? And you're like, maybe that person is so-and-so and they felt weird about citing themselves. Oh, that's funny. That would be awkward as hell. I, so <laughs> here, here's what I would say about that, I guess, as a kind of a, so I think it's, So I guess I'm thinking about it actually from almost the undergraduate or maybe not undergrad, because I think at one point I I even had grad students who didn't necessarily know this, but I I just, maybe I'll respond from the ethical standpoint. I think it is a responsible thing to do and that we should do it if, because you don't want to be using old research and presenting it as if it were something new. And I think that could be an ethical issue. So if you've done the work, cite the work, or to your to your earlier point, cite other people. And I'm okay. I mean, I feel weird. I think one time I quoted myself, I, that feels weird to me. Like I, and I don't have, you know, like a ton, I think I've done it once, but so I, I'd rather use the citation. I feel super awkward to like Bailey says, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then, then I feel a bit pretentious. Right. And and so I haven't ever done that like on, like in a, 
in an article that I have in a talk because I was trying to quote something that I had, whatever. But anyway, so that feels, then it feels a little pretentious. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's probably what I would say is just do it if it's ethical, if it's unethical to not do it, right? Yeah. And I also, I will say the thing about this profession is that a lot of times the stakes of what we do are, are pretty low, which should be a, a nice thing about this job, that nobody is dying on the surgical table if, if we're having a bad day at work, which means for, for me, like, if you want to celebrate yourself a little bit for having been the first person to write about this or having written the most important article about this, please, by all means, you know, it doesn't hurt me in any way if that's what you need to do. So, so for me, I, you know, do what you want. Yeah. Hey, toot your own horn. Hey, if you don't toot it, <laughs> no, it might not get tooted. I don't know. <laughs> I'm the queen of, I think this is because of my interest in oral tradition. So I'm the queen of like proverbs and, and metaphors and, and all of these different very innovative uses of language, but I always screw them up. So I always try to tell people nothing beats a, a fail, but a try. But I don't know if that's it or if it's nothing beats a try but a fail. And then I get confused when I try to explain <laughs> which one. So that is a thing, right? That like Constance's botched metaphors might become its own segment. We'll have like outtakes of <laughs> Constance's ones. Yes, yes, the outtakes. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else on peerless review slash we should be writing? I, I, I like this as a stopping point. I think to sum up... Journals have this strange currency in academia, publications do. They have some pluses and minuses that we've discussed. Uh, you should uh, have whatever writing process is best for your life, your situation, your brain, your body, and uh, toot your own horn because uh, we want to celebrate you and the things that you've done. Awesome. Well, hey, if you have any other questions, comments for us, feedback, hit us up on the Unpack This Podcast at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's a wrap. All right. Till next time.